Hi, I'm Pete Hughes, and you've clicked on the Reach Australia podcast. At Reach Australia, we want to see hundreds of healthy, evangelistic, multiplying churches all over our country. Recently, we had our national conference. Rory Shiner did some excellent Bible talks. Here is the first talk. Make sure you look out for the others to come. Well, my, uh, my teacher friends tell me that you're supposed to think in terms of learning outcomes and you're supposed to declare at the start what your learning outcomes are, the, uh, where you want the lesson to go and where you want uh, people to move to in the kind of uh, educational experience. So I'll give it a shot. Here's my outcomes. The first thing I want to do is to blow your mind. <laughs> I want to blow your mind uh, because I think Paul wants to blow your mind. Uh, I think the passage that we're looking at and the passages that we're looking at in, in Colossians are uh, addressed to the head and to the heart and to the hands. But I think particularly what we're looking at this morning is, is addressed to the imagination. It's supposed to make you lift up and, and think big and say, wow, uh, Jesus is bigger, God is bigger, what he's doing is bigger than I ever get the chance in the cut and thrust of daily life to think about. So learning outcome number one, uh, I want to blow your mind. And learning outcome number two, I want to blow your mind particularly, and this is where we're heading into the second talk, but to make the connection that what God is doing is so much bigger and impressive than we can you know, have the chance to think about in, the, in normal life, but to make the connection that the bigness of what God is doing uh, lands in, and it, it, the primary site of it in this world is the church. Uh, so I want, I want particularly for that wow experience, that blow your mind, oh my goodness, this is big, to also raise the stakes for us in, in how we think about our church and our churches, how we think about uh, the work that we do that is sometimes so discouraging and difficult and sometimes just tedious and, uh, and sometimes joyful, but to raise the stakes on what we're doing because it's so intimately connected uh, with what God is doing to bring glory to His Son for the restoration of all things. Uh, now, that's the learning outcome. Uh, maybe I won't be able to get us there, but that's where the passage is trying to get us. So let's ask God uh, for his help. Uh, Father, we really uh, pray that we would have the time and space, uh, the, the unhurried minds to, to languish and lavish in your word, to, to be built up in it, to allow our imaginations again to be captured by uh, what it is that you're doing for our universe in the Lord Jesus. We pray it for his glory. Amen. So Colossians uh, chapter uh, 15 to 23 is where we're kind of hanging out. And let me explain, I am reading the book of Colossians, not reading through the book of Colossians. So don't be at me if I missed a verse or uh, didn't kind of work through it. Uh, we're, we're going at this book and asking, uh, what, do you, what have you got to say about togetherness, about God's purpose for relationships? And so in verse 15, uh, we begin there and it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, here's my best shot at laying the, the foundation of the Christian worldview, uh, the, the most basic building block of how Christians are, are taught the, re, the, the reality uh, that God has revealed to us. Uh, it's this, there's only two things in all reality. Everything you've ever met, ever uh, touched, engaged with, uh, smelt, handled, seen, everything fits into either one or two categories. It's either God 
or it's something that God made. And there's no third category. Uh, Everything you ever encounter is either God or a, a thing that is the creation of God. God or something God's made, there is nothing else. So everything, every flower and every tree, every mountain, every lake, every river, every sea, hugs, tobacco plants, meth, uh, the chord of D7 on a banjo, angels, demons, black holes, books, masaka, rom-coms, that part of the beach on the sand that's uh, soft enough to walk on but hard enough to hold you uh, just before the beach, Uh, giggling, governments, plumbing, iPhones, tofus, we could be here all day. What the Bible says is that literally everything, that it's impossible to think of a thing that is not either God or something that God has made. Now, the implications of that are huge, right? Huge if true, as they say on the internet. Uh, That everything fits into one of those two points, one of those two realities. We're going to come back to that in a second. But I want to ask a specific question of this verse. If that's true... There's a creator and there's a creation and there is nothing else. On which side of that divide is the son? He's the firstborn of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. He really does mean all things. Notice that he goes on because you think, oh, he says all in the way we sometimes use all to mean not all. But Paul goes on, says things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Question, uh, which things weren't made in, by, for and through Jesus? Nothing. All things. Paul goes out of his way to exclude the loopholes that we introduce into our minds. Did God create just the thing? Did Jesus, God through Jesus, God through the Son, create just the things on earth? No, also the things in heaven. Did he create just the visible things? No, also the invisible things. But surely you're not including, you know, demonic, satanic rulers and authorities and powers and principalities. No, everything made in, by, and for Jesus. Verse 17 He is before all things. You will never encounter a thing that is older than the sun. And you won't encounter a thing that you'll never encounter a thing that's older than the sun, not because Jesus the Son is the oldest thing, but because Jesus the Son was before there was such a thing as things. He's older than things themselves. In verse 17, all things hold together in him. You see, on the creation side of the distinction, the son is firmly on the side of the creator. He's not in the list of things that were made, but he pre-exists all things and all things hold together in him. And yet, and yet, the son is not just a synonym for God the Father. The son here is not just another word for God. They're not interchangeable or morphable. Uh, they're not two ways of saying the same thing. That The Father and the Son have a relationship one to another. Now, think about that for a moment. As we're kind of building out a Christian worldview, 
the Son and the Father were always together. Before there were things, there was the relationship of the Father and the Son, which means nothing is older than togetherness. Nothing is older than, more primary than, more basic than the relationship of love between the Father and the Son. Don't you think that might be a bit of a clue to the meaning of life? If, if the most basic truth of, of all reality is that there was father and son in a relationship of love one to another, I think that has huge explanatory power for a thing that we all know is true, which is that the relationships we, we have are the most precious things we have. That when we're thinking reasonably and rationally and, and seriously, uh, nothing is more important in life not me as a rugged individual, but me in the relationships that I'm put into, relationships of love and care in this world. Uh, you know that both in its presence and in its absence. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I went to, uh, when the kids were young, so four kids, all young, and we got babysitters and we went out, so it's a you know, significant thing to get all the babysitters and so on, and, and my wife and I, Susan, went out and we went to Cottesloe Beach, uh, where there is a, a restaurant that overlooks the beach. It's one of those rare combinations uh, back in the day of a good view with good food. You know, normally it's like pick one. Uh, this place happened to have uh, good food and a good view. And, and so, you know, we went there and we were having this great meal together and we're out. And it just feels like really precious time. And I, you know, I love Susan. She's beautiful. And so there we are looking at her. And then in uh, WA, the, the sun sets over the beach and it's very dramatic and it's like just absolutely beautiful. And then we're having the meal. And, and I think I, I trust I'll have your sympathies in this. So I've got a strategy with eating food, which is where uh, I think lots of us do this, where you go from the worst to the best. So you want to build the meal up to this big crescendo at the end. And uh, so you're working through the broccoli and like hacking your way through the salad and you're kind of you're heading toward the home stretch. And we're kind of chatting and so on. And then just at the moment where I'm heading toward the kind of big finale, Susan says, oh, can I try yours? And, <laughs> takes it and eats it. I can, I can feel that the crowd is with me because <laughs> I, I, I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and she said, are we really going to fight about this? <laughs> and I paused for a moment and I said, yes. <laughs> and at that moment... It was like someone just put the fluoro lights on and we were eating three-day-old Maccas. It was just, the whole thing was kind of gone. We might as well have been like in a shed in an industrial estate, just like, you know, licking, you know, uh, cigarette ash off the floor. It was just like, <laughs> the whole thing was finished and we said, and then the, the waitress came and she said, do you guys want any dessert? No, well, we're done here, thanks. And we just drove. <laughs> so, such is the power of, relationships, right? <laughs> all, all, the, all the beauty in the world, suddenly it's just like, it, it's nothing if you're not in a relationship of, of love and affection. We, I saw this uh, documentary a few years ago, uh, Robert Hughes, the great Australian uh, art critic, and he's doing a thing on architecture, and uh, he has three different architects, but he's, he's doing Gaudi, you know, Gaudi from uh, Spanish, uh, in, uh, does the Holy Family Cathedral, you know, there's, there's a cathedral in Barcelona, it, just, it looks like it's just grown out of the ground, and it's just... He does these unbelievable buildings. There's not a straight line anywhere. They just look like they're grown. And he's very devout Catholic, and so there's all this kind of 
piety built into them and, and stuff. And, and Robert Hughes, uh, clearly his favourite architect, he's just kind of gushing um, to, the, to the camera as he talks about how good this is. And he goes and interviews a, an old Spanish man who lives in these uh, apartments. And he just wants to know, like, what's it like to live in, in an apartment made by Gaudi? And so he talks to him and he, uh, the guy says, it's, it's kind of, you know, it shows you all these kind of whimsical things that you pull this thing and the door opens and like all this kind of lovely stuff. And at the end of the interview, he says, uh, he says tell you, so you, you like living here? And then he paused and he said, actually, my, my wife died last year. I don't really like it here anymore. Again, just the whole thing. Just because we know in our better moments, at our funerals, at, at eulogies, and uh, that what matters in the world has uh, been relationships of giving and receiving. In finding our identity, not by dredging from within us some kind of uh, some kind of fostered identity, and you know, it, it's by the relationships that we come into, the love that we share, and, and the, the the Christian worldview gives huge explanatory power to that, because there's nothing more basic uh, or more true than relationships of love, one to another. So God has always been together with the Son. God is together with the Son. That is the most basic uh, truth of all reality, according to the Bible. But secondly, notice um, the Son and the creation are together. They're together in a different way, but they are together. Uh, you can see this in, in the prepositions. Uh, if, you, if you look at that verse, the, the creation is in Him, it's through Him, it's by Him. He's before all things. All things are held together in Him. Uh, here, the, the, Paul's trying to explain the relationship between the, the, the togetherness of the creation. Is the creation coherent and together? He says, yes, it is. And it is uh, through the sustaining work of the sun. Uh, this is a big question, right? How, how, do, you put, how do you put it all together? Uh, religious traditions have done different ways. So uh, one very common way is to say that the, the creation is one with God because it is God. That, that you account for the oneness of the world, that suspicion that it all makes sense, that it all holds together. You say, well, that's true because it is all, in the end, God. Uh, the other option, I guess, on the other extreme is to say that the, the things are unrelated to God, that there's a God and there's things and they've got nothing in common. There's just this raw fact that there's such a thing as the world and there's God and he didn't make it and he, if he did, he sort of abandoned it and so on. What Paul is saying is something much more subtle and much more profound than that. Because he's saying at the one level that there are two things, not one thing. There is God and there is creation and they're different things. They're not the same thing. They're not confusable things. Uh, this worldview is why uh, the Christian faith has been such fertile ground for science. Because uh, if you see the world in this way, then you can also go into a laboratory and say, I reckon this is going to make sense. I reckon if I ask the right questions, then this, this, this chemical is going to yield to me some rational uh, reason for how it works. Or this, uh, as a Christian artist, a tree can just be a tree. It doesn't have to be a portal to God. So, so you, you had this kind of uh, embrace of the creation because it has its own integrity. It is its own thing. It's not being co-opted into being something else. It's not being uh, kind of manipulated and so on. The, the creation has genuine autonomy and yet, nothing in creation is finally autonomous from or independent of the sun. Like nothing. You never meet anything 
that is remote from, independent of, unknown by, unmade by, unowned by, or unruled by the Son. All things are created by him, through him, for him, and in him. Which means, again, all things find their for, F-O-R, their forness in him. That, that, that the only way you can finally know what a thing is, to know how to relate to it rightly, whether that's a thing or a person, is to understand what its nature is, well, what is it, and to understand what it's for, like what its purpose is. And this is saying that all things are in, through, by, and for the Son. Uh, in, uh, in our church, we have an uh, evangelistic program. We call it 242. Uh, so you pray for two non-Christians that you know for two minutes uh, once a day. Now, when I'm in Perth, I say that we thought of that ourselves. Here, I probably should say we sold it from Hunter Bible Church. Uh, LAUGHTER uh, it's a great program, it really works, it's really lifted uh, the evangelistic spirit in our church, and you're praying for people, you know, you're just holding them before God, uh, you know, uh, uh, for two minutes a day, uh, every, every day, and, and, uh, and asking that God would come into their lives uh, and reveal himself to them. I just want to tell you about one of my guys, not both of them, just one of them, uh, his name is Jeff, okay, and he, we live on the same street, and we've got to know each other quite well, because we've lived on the same street for kind of 10 uh, 10 years now, and uh, we'd kind of hang out together and we'd, uh, um, you know, see each other at the dog park and, and that sort of thing, live close to one another. Uh, Jeff is in a same-sex uh, relationship, very long-term uh, same-sex relationship. Relevant to that is that we, um, we were together during the, um, uh, the plebiscite, during the vote on same-sex marriage, and he wanted to engage me on it. He was like, I oh, wanted to really talk about this and, and, and probe and so on. And so we were up at the dog park, I remember one day, and uh, Jeff's talking to me, and he's saying, oh, you know, what are you going to do? Which, which way are you going to vote? And I said, oh, maybe you think this is bad or good or whatever, but I said, I don't want to tell you which way I'm going to vote. I mean, t- you tell me, what do you, what do you think? What's the things here? I was just trying to kind of buy time and be, I don't know, whatever. And so, <laughs> I- I- insert your word there. Uh, but I say, oh, Jeff, I don't, you know, you tell, you know, what's what's at stake for you and all that kind of thing. And he looked me in the eyes, and he just like caught my eye. And I don't, don't know what he saw, but he looked. He said, "You're going to vote no, aren't you?" And then he picked up, you know, the sticks that you use to pick up the balls that you throw to your dogs, like when you're doing that. And he picks up and he starts hitting me on the head, and he says, "You effing!" And then worse words than that, you you're going to vote no, aren't you? And you share that. You don't forget a thing like that. Uh, <laughs> And so that's the relationship with, with Jeff. And so I would, uh, I would describe his current spiritual status, or his relationship towards the Christian faith, as enthusiastically hostile. Uh, that's the kind of category that he's, he's in. Um, but there's a, another side to things. So he, uh, he has got emphysema. He's now dying. Uh, he's a very profound alcoholic and very overweight. And uh, my, I go up there every weekday with one of my sons because we walk his dogs uh, in the afternoon. Twice now we've found him collapsed on the floor and had to pick him up. And, and I think one day we we'll, might find him and he won't uh, be with us anymore. So I pray very earnestly that he'll uh, come to know the Lord Jesus before that. Now, Jeff is, humanly speaking, uh, in my mind, about as far from the Christian faith as anyone I know. Like just in terms of the plausibility structure, like what are the chances? 
it just it feels so remote. Now, that may be kind of missionally true. You, you know, the, the truest thing about Jeff is that he's made by and for Jesus. That, that he will never know who he truly is until he comes in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell myself that every time we go up there because I tend to think not like that. I feel like I'm bringing this alien thing from Mars, this, this message that's completely extraneous to his life. And the truth is that if he does come to faith in the Lord Jesus, as I pray he will, he'll be coming home. He, he won't be coming into something new. He'll be coming back to the one who made him and loves him and, and whose significance and security is in him. All things made by and for the Son. Come back with me to verse uh, 15. It, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Uh, all things are made in, through, in, through and by the Son. That is God's uh, work in the, uh, the original creation. Uh, the God that we're talking about is invisible, uh, and, and the invisibility of God which is just a fact, right? No one's ever seen God, that God is invisible. That's just, that's just baked into the thing. Uh, no one's ever seen God. God's invisible. But the invisibility of God is a challenge to the knowability of God. Like, if you can't see him, how can you know him? There's a problem. Uh, lots of people have had different ways of solving that problem. The, the, the high Greek, like the Greek philosophical tradition, its solution is to say, you can't know him. Like, you say, you want to know God? You say, what are you talking about? Like, God, God, God is a necessary consequence of reasoning. That He's a necessary being. He must, he must be. But the idea that you would know him, like what? No, that's it's not even on the table. What are you talking about? Most humans haven't been happy with that. And so most humans have gone for another option, which is idolatry. Uh, you solve the problem of the invisibility of God uh, by making images, by making idols. And you, you make the idol and you say uh, to the community, say, hey, guys, and, and maybe in the kind of the, the steel man version of idolatry, maybe you're saying, hey, look, this isn't a God, um, but just because we can't see God, let's just focus our worship here. Uh, maybe that's the, the best case scenario. What inevitably happens in idolatry is that the focus becomes on that thing and that, that becomes your God, that you actually begin to worship a thing that's part of the creation rather than part of the uh, creator, but... Uh, idolatry is a kind of solution, a broken, evil solution to the problem of the unknowability of God because of the invisibility of God. Now, in the Old Testament and in the uh, Jewish situation, uh, they agree God is invisible, but idols are off the table. That's not an option because uh, in the worst case scenario, if you're worshipping a thing in the creation, that, that is, that is uh, this kind of evil reversal, you should worship the creator rather than the creation. And even in the steel man version of idolatry, uh, even if you're saying, hey, look, we're not saying this is God, we're just saying this is like a portal to God, uh, the, the, the retort of the Old Testament is that is a distortion of God. That, that won't lead you, every image, the image won't lead you to God. It won't faithfully represent God. It will distort God. It will distort your knowledge of God. But in the Old Testament, the invisibility of God is addressed not by us making images of him, but by him making images of him 
in us. Because according to the Old Testament, we are the image of God. The vocation of every human is to be and to bear the image of God. The way I like to put it is that humans are God's argument for the existence of God. We are God's case closed, that there is a God and He looks a bit like us. God puts His image into the world. Pretty soon, King Charles will be the, uh, the monarch on our coins. And when King Charles does that, he's, he's participating in a very old tradition, uh, going right back uh, into ancient times of putting your image on the coin so that when the coin is distributed throughout the realms, you can see the image of your ruler who you can't see in the realms, but remember that he is there. That, that's the logic of, of the image-bearing idea on the coin and on the human person. Now, of course, in, in, the, in the situation of the fall, uh, we have become distorted images of God. It's as if the, print, the, uh, the mint that's going to print the pictures of uh, King Charles uh, kind of has a, a dodgy batch that goes out and like the ears are too big and the eyes are sideways and the, the crown's upside down or whatever and he's declared King of France or something. And, uh, uh, so kind of this Picasso-type uh, thing. Uh, we are distorted... Um, so now we no longer do the thing that we ought to do, which is to faithfully bear the presence of God in, in his realm, in the world. We are distorted, but interestingly, distorted, uh, but not completely defaced. Like the Bible says that the, the, the thing I owe to you, whether you're Christian or atheist or Muslim or Buddhist, is that you still bear the image of God. I can, it's still there. It, it's still a thing that is true of you. We are like fallen monarchs with amnesia. We are those who were once graced and intended for greatness and we have forgotten, but every so often you see it. Uh, in the, uh, I've reached that age now, born in 1975, so I've reached whatever age it is uh, when you're allowed to do dated cultural references. Uh, so, here we go, 2002 film, uh, The Bourne Identity. I'm sure a bunch of you are much too young to remember. This is uh, a Matt Damon film, and the whole premise of the film, okay, is that uh, Matt Damon, you meet him, he's on a, on a boat, and he's, uh, it's a fishing boat, and he's, he's been knocked out. He's, got, he's kind of waked up, he's supposed to be killed, but he's, he's survived. But he's lost his entire memory, has no idea who he is, has no kind of evidence on him, no kind of uh, way of working out who he is. So the whole quest is to work out who he is, not based on information that he can gather or memory that he has, but based on what he can do. So Matt Damon is like this kind of mystery to Jason Bourne, this mystery to himself, because he's trying to work out who am I, and the only line of evidence he's got is like, there are these things that I can do which must be a clue to who I am. That's, that's the, the, the Jason Bourne situation, and then he, he's got a love interest, and they end up in this diner, and it's the first time they kind of sit down and kind of exegete uh, the whole situation, and this is what uh, he says. He says, I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is looking for the exits. I can tell you the license plates of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and that the guy sitting at the counter weighs 215 pounds and can handle himself and that at this altitude I can run a half mile before my hands start shaking. Why would I know that? And that's the, the, the situation of every human being. You know, most of the times we're just kind of schlepping around, doing our thing, 
But every so often, you, you see in someone, in, a, in an act of kindness or a creation of something of beauty or a, a judgment of great wisdom, and you think, well, what, where'd that come from? What's that? And, and, and we go around in the world and we see these vestiges of the image of God occasionally when someone pulls off a great act of service or kindness or a great uh, work of judgment and and beauty and so on. And, and we just get these glimpses, but we don't remember. And so we're like, where did that come from? And the Bible says that the Son comes into this world and he is the image of God. He's the one who, when he comes into our world, you look at Jesus and you go, wow, that's how you do it. That's how you come and see. That's how you raise the dead. That's how you attend to a woman who's been bleeding and ostracized for how many years. That's how you do. This is this is how you, that's how you teach. That's how you gather. You look at Jesus and you say, "Well, that's that's how you do human. That that's what we were supposed to be." And now my memory is jogged because I see it in you. I see the way that you are in the world, and I understand what it is that we were meant to be. As we uh, draw this uh, to a close, I want to give you a, a picture that we're going to work on for the next uh, couple of sessions. So here's the, here's the basic picture. Imagine you go, you're at an um, Airbnb, or a holiday house, and you get there and it's otherwise clean. The people have done the right thing. They've cleaned up after themselves and so on, except uh, they forgot and they left out an old jigsaw puzzle. And so the jigsaw puzzle is on the table, uh, but it's all messed up and it's all over the place and they've lost the box. And so the thing is just there. So you can't see the photograph of the thing that it's supposed to be. And the whole thing is kind of upside down and, and, and it's a big mess. So you're kind of a little bit uh, annoyed as you see that that's been uh, left there. The whole thing is all over the place. Okay, hold that, hold that picture in your head. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body the church. Uh, tomorrow we're going to look at this and dive deep into the picture of what it means uh, to be the church and what it means for Christ to be the head of the church. I think it's a really strange picture. You know, Christ is the head and we're the body. It's this kind of got this like Frankenstein type vibe to it. There's, you're supposed to imagine this big uh, body, but I, I think it's really important because it's, it's saying something about the connection with the head and the body that, as it says in Ephesians 5, that uh, no one ever hated their own body but loves and cares for it. Uh, it it's a picture of genuine and in the non-dodgy sense of the word organic <laughs> unity. The head loves the body and tends it and serves it. We'll come back to this tomorrow, but I've got a bit of a definition to work with. Christ's headship over the church refers to his authority to guide us, his fullness to supply all we need for life and growth, including protecting us from what would destroy us. But the point for today is to notice the connection. Christ is the head and the church is the body. This is the unity of the one man. We're all becoming one man, one Adam, the new Adam, the last Adam. We are becoming in Christ the true final form of the image bearers of God as he unites us Jew and Gentile into one new man, into the last Adam. That, that's what God is doing amongst us. So come back to the jigsaw puzzle. 
there it is, just a mess on the table. You haven't got the, the lid, so you don't really know how it's supposed to go and so on. Uh, but then you, you wake up the next morning and you walk past on the way to the fridge and you notice that there's something there that you didn't notice before. That, that in, the, in the middle of the table, there is actually a bit that has been put together. There's like, there's like a, dozen, a dozen bits and you think, oh, I miss that. And you look at it and you think, actually, I think I can see something. Not like, not like 100%, it's not like fully high res, but I can see that there's a unity in this thing. And I know that there's a unity because that bit, those, those dozen or so pieces are the promise that, that the whole thing does make sense. That there's unity there, therefore there's unity in all things, that's the church. You see, in the church, what God is doing is declaring the victory of Jesus over the forces of chaos, over sin and death and Satan, over the powers and principalities. God is declaring the achievement of Christ on the cross through the church through the unity of the church, through the bit that he's knitting together now, which puts the forces of chaos on notice that their game is up. Because the reunification of all things in Christ has already begun in the church. That's what we're doing. As we gather together, as we sing God's praises, as we hear God's word, as we uh, come together on mission and in service one to another, as we love each other across divides of age and, uh, and race and class, as we work out how to be the church of God in our various churches, we are declaring the end game of God, of bringing the whole universe now shattered together again under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing together. Uh, now the band's going to come up and we're going to sing together all creatures of our golden king as together as the church, as the, the pilot project, as the original place of God's work through Jesus, uh, we declare that all creatures of our golden king can and will one day praise him. Let's stand and sing together. Well, that was Rory Shiner on Colossians. I hope you found it encouraging and stimulating. Keep an eye out for other resources that are to come at reachaustralia.com.au forward slash resources. And if there's anything else that you need or any questions that you want, why don't you email us? Resources at reachaustralia.com.au. I'm Pete Hughes. Chat soon.